This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Tim served in the US Air Force and the NSA from 1975 to 1988. This included stints at US Air Force Electronic Warfare Center at Kelly Air Force Base in Texas and RAF Chicksands in the UK, working on signals intelligence collection of Soviet, Warsaw Pact and other targets. He also served as part of the Cryptologic Support Group at Strategic Air Command, SAC, at Offer Air Force Base, Nebraska, providing SIGINT briefings to SAC leadership on worldwide events. In 1983, he transferred to the NSA and later to GCHQ Cheltenham in Gloucestershire, UK. We hear about the first indications that something was amiss the morning the Chernobyl reactor exploded in 1986, the day the cleaners answered the secure phone at SAC HQ, and how at GCHQ, US and British intelligence share information as part of the UK-USA agreement. I'm delighted to welcome Tim to our Cold War conversation. It was 1975. I decided to join uh, during the time in America and perhaps in other areas of the world. uh, Recession was uh, occurring. I was in university at the time and decided, well, I've always wanted to serve in the military. I had a couple of cousins that had served in the Air Force that I looked up to, so decided to go in. Uh, I originally had wanted to go in in electronics. Quite a humorous story about that, as I completely aced all the questions on the electronics test, the uh, vocational test, and was prepared to go into electronics. It was something that I really loved. And I was doing fine until we got to the colorblind test. And that's when things went amiss, and I failed it. So the interviewing sergeant said, uh, you can't go into electronics. I said, why not? I aced the test. He says, son, if you were allowed to go into electronics, you're liable to wire one of our F-4 fighters to shoot itself down. We have to find another career field for you. So that's when I was... Uh, redirected to go into something called communications analysis. I had no idea what it was, but the more I read about it, the more it sounded great, went into it and loved it. What was communications analysis? It sounds like a, um, that sounds like a cover name for something a little bit more uh, interesting. Yes, it was. Uh, The more I dug into it, the more I realized that this was electronic eavesdropping and uh, analysis of intercepted communications. I was able to find someone in the recruiting office that knew a little bit more about it. And that's when I was hooked. I said, that's for me. So presumably you're you're straight into some sort of initial training. Yeah. Uh, Once finished what we call basic training or boot camp, I was sent to West Texas to a place called Goodfellow Air Force Base out in the prairies of West Texas and as the Joint Cryptological School, Joint Services. So it's very similar to what uh, you have in the UK at 
chicksands now where you have Air Force, Army, Marines, Navy, all coming together and being trained in basic cryptography and analysis techniques. And that was about a six-month school. And and were you vetted for this role before you joined? Did they run any security checks on your background or family background? Yes, I did. All military members have to be able to pass at least a secret level clearance. But then uh, OSI uh, and the Air Force came out and did background checks on my mom and dad and teachers and neighbors that I grew up with for the clearance because I had to be vetted for a top secret clearance. And even beyond the top secret clearance were the special compartmented access for signals intelligence. And so they're training you what equipment you're using or are they they trying to develop you for language skills as well? Actually, neither. I was not directed into the linguistic program. There were linguists there that were learning. That was a career, uh, a different career field or a different specialty. And I did not have to deal with the equipment side. Mine was purely the intelligence and analysis of the intercepted traffic. Okay. So there's somebody else listening to the traffic and your role is to analyze the data that's that's coming through and try and interpret what information that's giving you. That's correct. After your initial training, where are you sent to then? Well, I joined the Air Force, I thought, to see the world. And I ended up going right back to San Antonio, Texas, where my basic training had been just six months earlier and got directed to the Air Force Electronic Warfare Center at Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. So I joined the Air Force to see Texas for the first couple of years. Can you just describe to me what what is meant by electronic warfare? Well, there are various facets of electronic warfare. There are some of the things that might seem obvious from those who have watched uh, war movies, uh, particularly those involving any electronics. So there's the jamming of signals. There's also the interfering of signals, uh, meekening, uh, which is where you mimic a beacon in order to throw off the uh, aircraft and direct it in a different path or get it to do things that it shouldn't do. For instance, the Russians had meekening capabilities for that targeted our F-111 fighter bombers. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with these, but they're the old swing-wing fighter bombers that were programmed with terrain-following radar. So they could fly at supersonic speeds at treetop level. And as the terrain-following radar would notice that there would be a rise in elevation, it would adjust the altitude of the aircraft accordingly. Well, the Russians had meekening capability on that, and they could make a meekin that would spoof a hill or a forest or whatever and make the aircraft jump up to an altitude to where it would be vulnerable to radar detection. Also, there was uh, other types of electronic warfare in terms of 
early stealth technology where you would try to lower what was known as the radar cross-section of an aircraft using composite materials and paints and other types of devices on board the aircraft to shrink or completely block the radar signature that the enemy would see as they're tracking you on air defense radar. So those were the things that we dealt with at the Air Force Electronic Warfare Center. Right. So even in the 1970s, the the stealth technology was starting to be uh, developed. Yes, very much. And uh, actually, it was in the 1960s, as I found out from working there, because we did a lot of analysis from the late 60s and 70s that the American Air Force had learned from the Vietnam conflict. Some of these techniques were developed during that time that supported things like the Wild Weasel Program. Again, I'm not sure if you or your listeners are familiar with that, but F-4 fighters that were specially trained to go on missions to hunt SAM sites by popping up, being able to lock in on, for instance, an SA-2 site and be able to follow that radar beam and locate a missile and send it on its way to knock out the SAM site. Uh, Those kind of things that we ran into, and also how the Vietnamese, along with the help of the Russians, were able to defeat some of that. So it was a measure of electronic countermeasures and then counter-countermeasures, unlike spy versus spy. Uh, As we would uh, up our game, they would come up with countermeasures that would defeat that. So we would come up with counter, counter, countermeasures. Like a game of whack-a-mole. Yes, exactly. Uh, (laughs) Other things like chaff, the use of chaff to disguise uh, radar signatures too, which your Air Force perfected pretty well back during World War II uh, to fool the German radar. Uh, That was used heavily and during that time and also anything having to do with infrared signatures how to mask or completely hide those you mentioned with the mekon earlier that the soviets had had managed to uh sort of spoof terrain uh to try and get the uh, f-111s to uh come up above the uh the radar how did you get to find out that the soviets had developed that that technology how how were you gaining that information various means uh intelligence even though my specialty was in sigint or signals intelligence the things that we were trained in would be considered fusion uh, fusion analysis where you take sigint elint electronic intelligence also satellite overhead from the KH-11 satellites and other satellites that were used for intel collection, combined with HUMINT, that is agent reports, fuse that together to discover various types of uh, anomalies that would be happening. For instance, you may, in the case of trying to roll up on a particular air defense network in operation, you might notice that there's an extra station there on the network that wasn't there last week. They're referencing certain types of equipment that no one else seems to know about. Or you just happen to roll across something in your search through the frequencies that seems a bit odd. 
doesn't fit the mold for what you normally find in that frequency range. So you do research on it, start doing some direction finding, you pinpoint where the emanations are coming from, and then start doing analysis of what what is this signal, what is it doing, and wow, in a case like a particular transmitter coming out of East Germany, you realize, wow, that's at the same frequency as our F-111 uses for terrain-following radar. And then the more you study it, and then maybe even send in some, uh, not boots on the ground, but maybe plimsolls on the ground <laughs> to find out what's maybe there, you realize, oh, they're working on something to spoof that particular radar. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So you might be directing, for example, the U.S. military liaison mission in East Germany to have a sniff around. Yes. And the collection capabilities, even back in the 70s and 80s, for NSA, GCHQ, and our other allied organizations were pretty extensive. Of course, I've been out of that business for a number of years. But even back then, it was enormous. We could actually go through... And if we suspected a activity on a particular area of the bandwidth for high frequency or very VHF, UHF, any of those areas, we could pinpoint that or give a range and go back to NSA or GCHQ and say, can you have a look between, say, 3,000 megahertz and 4,500 megahertz on this day to this time? Because everything was just being hoovered up and taped. So they could rerun the tapes and then dump out the data to us, and we could find our golden nuggets that way sometimes. So there was a huge amount of data gathering going on even even then. Yes. Um, onto magnetic tape. Yes. What would a, a day look like in that role at Kelly Air Force Base? Well, for the Electronic Warfare Center, we'd be going through uh, what we call TAC-ELENTS or tactical ELENT reports of, say, a F-4 fighter or a C-130 mission that would be doing collection, and they would have anomalous signals that they would pick up, and we would log those into our mainframe computer. It was my first experience with computers as a whole. We had a, a Sperry Univac 2000 in the basement of the building that I worked in, and I got to be able to work with the mainframe for the very first time to be able to enter data into the machine as well as do retrievals and searches. But it was pretty laborious. It's not like Googling. Now, you had to do a command line that was probably 25 to 30 characters long, submit that as a query, 
and then wait overnight for the computer to churn through all of its data and then spit out a report the next morning that you hope found what you were looking for. Or you found that you've got one character wrong in your command line. and <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah. that always happened. You come back with no results found. You go, I know there are things there. And then you look back at your query. That's when the person that trained me said, oh, look, your next to the last character was a seven instead of a, a Z. Oh, resubmit and then wait another 24 hours for the results. Uh, we also got real live information too, obviously from Europe and the Pacific theaters, uh, not only against obviously the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact, but also against Chinese and Vietnamese and even potentially hostile third world type countries, uh, non-aligned like Yugoslavia or Romania or others. So it was a worldwide effort. Yeah, because I guess in particularly East Germany, you've got in West Berlin, you've got the uh, Teufelsberg and other uh, installations there, effectively right in the heart of East Germany and, and able to listen even as far, well, probably further afield than Poland as well. Uh, never underestimate the reach of radio signals. That's one thing that I learned. It was amazing. Even from my posting after the Electronic Warfare Center in Texas, my next posting was to RAF Chicksands in Bedfordshire. And there we used the AN FLR9 or Flare 9 antenna array to be able to gather signals from deep into the Soviet Union and across the Warsaw Pact, even as far down in, as the Mediterranean to be able to uh, go after targeted sites and networks to glean whatever information we could. And it was always amazing to me the reach of HF radio, especially when the atmospherics were really good at certain times of the day. Yeah, was that the uh, the elephant cage? Yes. Yes, the elephant cage that sat on the hill outside of Chicksands. Um I'll share a quick story about that, if you don't mind, too. I remember being at the local pub in Shefford, the village outside of Chicksands, and having a conversation with a couple of of uh, locals that were keen to find out, what are you Yanks really up to there? Can you tell us? So I decided to, as you'd say, take the mick out of them. And I said, well, uh it's a it's a big electromagnet. They go electromagnet. They were intrigued. I said, "Yeah, it's a giant electromagnet. We test it from time to time." Well, what's it there for? I said, "Well, you know, we have intercontinental ballistic missiles, and so do the Russians. So, in the event that the Russians decide to make a first strike against the U.S., we'll turn on the antenna array." the electromagnet, to draw the missiles in to keep them from making it across to America. And I said it was just completely straight face. And to see the look on their faces after about three seconds, classic. You bloody Americans, what are you doing? Hey, man, as we say, pulling your leg or taking the mick. Brilliant, brilliant. Was it the first time you'd been to the UK? being posted to Chicksands? 
Yes, I had never left America before. Uh, it was kind of a dream, you know, many Americans to us, you know, the UK is the land of legends. And uh, in my case, my family came from the UK to settle in America and to South Carolina about 300 some odd years ago. So for me, it was a way to see the old home country and see what it was all about. So quite excited to be posted there. I mean, you're working with the RAF at Chicksands or or not? Are you totally U.S. managed there? It's totally. It was a token RAF commander on the base. And uh, I don't mean to say that in a derogatory way, but it was one person. It was the RAF commander. Apparently, due to the status of forces agreement between the U.S. and U.K., uh, totally a U.S. operation otherwise. Was your role there different to the role that you had in uh, Texas, or was it a, a similar sort of role? Oh, it was completely different, Ian. Uh, there in Texas, I was dealing with historical information primarily and building databases of information on various radars and uh, making equipment and other jamming equipment. Basically, as we would say, building a database, building a catalog of experiences and technical parameters. Chicksands, all live, 7 by 24 rotating shifts, all focused at pulling in real live information and then making preliminary analysis in the field of what's going on, what conclusions can we draw, and then also how do we escalate this to other intelligence authorities if there's something that we feel like is uh, significantly off the beam that warrants further investigation or that senior government officials need to be aware of. So, So presumably you're looking at things like readiness status and things like changes in pattern in regular patterns that you normally see that indicate that something untoward may be happening yes in fact the word indicate uh, was part of our primary focus and that was indications and warning or inw and it was always the idea of finding out what are the baselines what are the norms and then how would the Soviets or Warsaw Pact countries, their forces deviate from that from time to time, for instance, during an air defense exercise or uh, closure of an airfield temporarily for uh, resurfacing uh, their airfield? How would they go about that? Or what would happen uh, order of battle changes? You might find, for instance, a station on a particular network sharing weather reports back and forth with their control headquarters. And then one day you come in and there's a new station on the network using these call signs. You break the call sign. You realize he doesn't belong on the network. He belongs over in this group. And then you realize, okay, is this something that is going to be regular or is this just a one-off 
Could it be due to a deployment or does this represent a true change in order of battle? I mean, you're there when solidarity is legalized in Poland. So what are you seeing in terms of Soviet changes and Warsaw Pact changes in, in status during that period? I happen to be thinking about this this morning, getting ready for our podcast. And it was quite a tense situation in 1979 when solidarity was on the rise, like Fawenza, Gdansk uh, shipyard protests. It emulated much of what people had seen in 1968 with the Czechoslovakian invasion by the Warsaw Pact. In fact, one of the senior NCOs that was over my particular shift was talking to me about that because we had brought some of the evidences that we were seeing for my particular section. And we were chatting among ourselves as we were sending reports back to the U.S. and U.K. authorities. And he made the comment, he says, this looks just like what happened in 68. We saw all kinds of deployments going on. Not only by the Soviets, obviously, but the East Germans, the Czechs, uh, and even internally, we saw quite a number of reactions or preparations by the Poles. They thought they were being invaded, too, and there were tons of indications that they gave that they were shutting down or stopping flow of information that could be used by Warsaw Pact against them. Were you seeing indications then that the Polish army may have fought if they'd been invaded? Well, certainly, I'm not sure about the army itself, but certainly the Polish Air Force. i give you an indication that we saw is that the Polish Air Force stopped sending out weather reports for all their airfields at some point. At one point, they were hourly. Then they started going to a three-hourly, and then back to the six-hourly. And then as things ratcheted up, we noticed that they would send the station identifiers and then nulls for the rest of the weather reports. It was indication that they were hunkering down, they were going to do something, we didn't know what, but it certainly gave indications that they they were ready to be invaded. They thought it was imminent. And that was one of the indications I personally watched. Wow. Wow. Because around that time is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Is is there right. a, a lot of noise you're seeing around about then, even though it's occurring yes. sort of away? Can you just tell me what you were seeing regarding that? Right. Uh, as you said, in that area of 1979, we saw early indications that the Russians were probably going to go into Afghanistan. There were a lot of flights by VDV, the paratroopers, uh, practicing and then making flights out towards Kabul and st- into staging areas around Kazakhstan, that area, to the point where it was pretty obvious that something was going to happen. We just didn't know to what scope. Was it going to be a quick strike and then back out? Or is this going to be a full-blown, we're taking over the country type thing? 
but we saw indications up to probably four to five months earlier that this was happening. The irony is, as we pass these reports up, our own State Department refused to believe that it was going to happen. Well, you can only tell them, can't you? You can. Well, that's the only thing that you can do in Intel is you can ring the bell, but you can't always get people to answer the alarm or to act upon it. And that's the thing that we had is uh, we had different levels of alert that we could send in terms of our reports. We had, uh, for instance, we had what were the normal everyday sort of reports that we sent out called Klieg lights from the German word Klieg. Um, And these Klieg lights were just, we saw this, this is unusual. Pay attention. But they were just very quick, almost like a chat would be now. And when Klieg lights started flying, then it would turn into what we would call a spot report. And that would usually be at least at the secret level or higher when we would say, well, something really serious is going on. And then the next step up from that would be the critic, which is, this is something that the president needs to know. The prime minister needs to know within the next 10, 15 minutes. This is something that we could go to war over. Obviously, critics didn't happen that often, but certainly when things were happening in Poland and Afghanistan, critics were issued at times. If I recall rightly, the fear with Afghanistan is this could be a precursor to a wider move into the Gulf. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the fear at the time, and that's why we weren't really sure if they were just going to go in, secure the place, and then pivot and go southward to the Persian Gulf or just what was going to happen. We did know that the Russians came and they meant business. They weren't there just to come in and wave the flag, do something ceremonial. They came in with their crack troops and they'd been practicing for months. And when when they they did go in, I mean, how quickly did you know that sort of the, the previous government had been decapitated and that they'd, they'd brought in new people were you picking sort of stuff up like that real time not so much that uh primarily just what we saw were the the military troop movements particularly the air force since my being in the air force all of our tasking was directed at the air assets of the soviets and warsaw back countries around about that time was the um was it the iranian hostage crisis around about that time as well Yes, it seemed like everything was going on in the world at the same time, much like today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, The Iranian hostage, that was huge, obviously, for us, particularly for Americans. Uh, One of the things that we did support occurred during that time is after the hostages had been in in, uh, captivity for some time, the plan was hatched to send in a force of Americans, the Delta Force, and commandos to try to attempt to rescue. For those that may remember during that time, it turned into a complete disaster. Aircraft lost, lives lost, element of surprise lost. It, it, was, it was a shambles. And primarily, this was due to weather. 
unexpected weather that occurred during that time. I'd heard reports during that time that we were not equipped with the right type of equipment going in, that the helicopters, for instance, that crashed didn't have the filters on the front to keep the sand out of the turbine intakes. There there were a number of things. And of course, whenever there's a fiasco, there are fingers pointed. Whose fault is it? Where was our intel? Didn't anybody see this happening? From my standpoint in the section that I was dealing with at the time, we did not see any of this weather develop. But that's just the sudden nature of what was going on uh, from a meteorological standpoint. Did it make it any easier listening into the Iranians that they had been supplied with quite a lot of American equipment? Uh, no, uh, it didn't make it any easier because everything was so volatile. You had no idea at the time which side was going to prevail. You didn't know if this uprising was going to last. Was there Were there any elements in the Iranian Air Force, for instance, that were still loyal to the Shah that might counterpunch and come in and you know, reset things to some sort of semblance of normalcy. So it, as things were, uh, were up in the air about our hostages, things were up in the air generally about Iran itself. Did you have any situations where you had false alarms? Now, we had a bit of a problem with recording for this short section, so uh, the audio quality isn't as good as previously, but I think it's still worth listening to us, so just bear with us for this short section. Thank you. Uh, sometimes the the Soviets would test out new encryption systems for encrypting their regular types of traffic, such as air defense tracking or weather broadcasts or other types of data that they would send. So uh, we were always on the lookout for these when they would do these tests because these were very highly visible and they required us to take particular actions. We had to raise our level of awareness and our level of vigilance of tracking this. We would also record the systems as we were getting them in. And even though we could not read anything more than the first few groups, we knew that this was a test of a particular encryption system that the Soviets would would run periodically, like once a quarter or once every few months. So it was a significant event, so we were always on the lookout for any changes to that. Well, what we would find uh, occasionally is that in the course of doing some of the collections, and I would be on watch sometimes when this would happen, one of the operators that was doing the intercepts and would flag me and say, Oh, I've got something here. Looks like maybe encrypted. And he would start plugging it into the teletype machine. And this is all high speed printer. And we were seeing all these figures coming through. And sure enough, it looked like it was encrypted. It wasn't the normal traffic coming through. And we would go page after page after page with it. So uh, some of the folks would report this. And I was 
happened to come on duty at the time where some of this was being collected and it had already been reported up the chain that it looks like the Soviets are testing a new encryption system, which if it had been the case on this particular broadcast, it would have been a first. It would have been a, what we call a game changer for this particular broadcast. So I started looking at the traffic and after a, just a few minutes of it, I realized, oh, I don't think this is encryption. And everyone's looking at me and go, what do you mean? It is clearly encrypted. It's, it's not normal traffic. I said, yeah, but if you take the end of the each line and reverse it, it makes sense. So I showed them on a piece of paper. I transcribed everything in reverse, and it was normal weather reports that were coming in. What had happened is the Soviets, just like we had, uh, whoever had loaded on the tape for these broadcasts was running the tape in reverse. So what looked to be a new encryption system was actually an error on the other side, and they were just sending things in reverse. They probably hadn't caught their own mistake until someone perhaps got on the ringer and said, oops, you're sending it out. We can't read it. Brilliant. Brilliant. You're at uh, Chicksands from 1977 to 1981. What's your next posting? Well, at that point, I'm off to Nebraska, the heartland of America. I'm attached to Strategic Air Command headquarters and off at Air Force Base just outside of Omaha. I'm attached to them with a group called the Cryptologic Support Group, or CSG for SAC. And what we did is we operated a mini Intel center within the Strategic Air Command Intel Center on the base about 50 feet below the ground in hardened bunkers, offices, advising SAC on world developments. So the the focus there was obviously not just what's happening with the Russians, but what's happening with the Chinese, what's happening with the Iranians, what's happening with terror groups. And that's when things were really starting to uh, expand in our intel collections against various terror groups like Red Brigades and Shining Path and others. So it became more of a worldwide focus at that point to brief SAC every morning on what was going on from a NSA standpoint. So in Nebraska, um, you're there through to 83. So do you get any view around the, the Able Archer alerts? Yes. Yes, we had that Able Archer, but we also had other instances of signals intelligence, other types of intelligence. This is when the fusion things that I was telling you about really blossomed because my level of clearance was raised to include other compartmented information having to deal with, uh, for instance, the telemetry intercepts that we made 
as well as satellite photography and information that we glean from, for instance, the KH-11 satellite. We also were privy to even higher level type of information at different levels, code name Gamma and TK for talent keyhole, which would have been the satellite information, and Bravo. So we would get briefings on that that you had to sign for. It was eyes only. You had to sign for everyone that read it had to sign that they had seen this. And then you put the folder back on and passed it to the next person. Uh, this is obviously in the days before we could share documentation across the Internet. Uh, these would be uh, indications, for instance, and we th kind of thought it was silly ourselves. Uh, there was a fascination about the Russians having the train-borne command post. Now, Russians have an airborne command post. We have airborne command posts. The RAF has, RA, has airborne command posts. But a train-borne command post, that was very secretive. Uh, it was very special how we got that information. The general staff train-borne command post would be moving from one place to another. And sometimes within this folder, you would look in there and there would be a one sentence. The train-borne command post uh, left Minsk and is headed to uh, its next destination at Semipalatinsk. That's it. And I would look at it and we would look at it and go, what's the big deal? Apparently, it was a big deal, and I think that that gets into the nature of intel collection in itself. Sometimes it's not what you find out, but how you found out, which is even more important of a secret. So there were certain indicators that would indicate a heightening of tension, such as the moving of a of the uh, the trainborne command post to a specific yes. location. Right, because this would affect, since it is the Soviet general staff, it would be the equivalent of our Joint Chiefs of Staff in the U.S. or the uh, whatever the equivalent would be with your MOD. Your top people that have their fingers figuratively or literally on the button that could launch a nuclear strike, this is where they would do it from. So the movements of this were highly classified, and uh, this was information that would just come in in dribs and drabs. There was no regularity to it. We may not see any intel on this for a week, and then we may get three reports in three days. There were a number of um, tension-raising incidents in 1983. I mean, the, the first one is the KAL-007 Korean airliner. I'm presuming you're all over that. Yes. Uh, that really attracted a lot of attention. I happened to be working the night that happened. And we were looking at the intel reports coming in, you know, trying to piece together what was going on, trying to understand what was happening. And, and you're trying to do this in the aftermath of, of intercepts because 
the first thing we find out is that, oh, the Russians have shot down a civilian airliner in the Far East. And why? Why did they do this? So there was a lot of going behind and filling in forensically, if you will. What happened? How did they deviate from course? Why did they deviate from course? And then looking at the intercepts of the Soviet air defense system, uh, looking at the uh, the tracking that went on, for instance, the ground radars that were tracking both the aircraft and vectoring the fighters towards them, but also the air-to-air intercepts, and they're talking to the control tower, what they're seeing, what they couldn't see, and trying to make sense of all that. It was a very confused picture, as you can imagine. At, at some point, we just, on one hand, yes, it's a tragedy. I don't know, what, 269 people dead, including a congressman from my area in Georgia was on board that flight. On the other hand, it, it makes your enemy look more human because you realize our perception of the Soviet Air Force, for instance, was these were the mighty Soviet Air Force. The, uh, they were the Klingons in Star Trek terms. They, they were the great adversary, the, the people that uh, were against us and wanted our annihilation from the face of the earth. They were mighty. They were invincible. And then you realize, oops, they're very human. And you also understand, too, you get an insight from the incident like that, that in terms of the psychology of how they would go to war in a real situation where that it wasn't a civilian airliner they were shooting down, but perhaps a B-52, that their command and control and their decision-making abilities on the fly were terrible compared to ours or the British or anyone in the in the NATO realm. They thought that this was one of the uh, American RC-135 flights aimed at gathering signals intelligence and e-lint and, and all, all the ints um, there. And I think when you know you're talking about hearing those radio transmissions to the um to their control and at one point i think the uh, soviet pilots asked to say you know are there any lights showing on the aircraft like mm-hmm. like uh porthole lights and there aren't and you know they they misidentify it as one of these flights by the sounds of it i'm presuming that's what what the conclusion that you came to Yes, and that's what they did. It's like, you know, this happened at night, so they were relying on the uh, any any silhouetting that could have happened against, for instance, any star field behind it or anything was negligible. So they were looking at the nav lights on there, but even the spread of the navigation lights on an RC-135 versus a 747 airliner, completely different. So it was, it, it pointed to a picture of ineptitude on the part of their pilots. It also pointed to the fact that when the Russians gave an order to their people, they were not used to being questioned. 
when they were given the order, you know, shoot it down. Apparently, they didn't question it and went ahead and launched the missile. But yeah, mistaking an RC-135 for a, for a 747, I think uh, a well-educated five-year-old could have told you that the two planes didn't look anything like each other. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. There was another incident where there was a U.S. Navy exercise into the Sea of Ohutsk during that period. And at one point, U.S. aircraft overflew Soviet territory whether by accident or design, I guess those sort of incidents give you, as you were saying, really valuable intelligence as to how their air defenses are going to respond to any potential war. Very much so. And of course, they do the same thing to us. And now you hear about it on the news, things that would have been at the secret level when I was working back then. I see them now on Reuters or Daily Mail online, oh, Soviet bear bombers flying near the Shetlands, RAF fighters chase them off. Ooh, and I go, I've been doing that for 50 years or more or longer. That happens every day. And the, and the Russians are still flying the same aircraft as well. Well, yeah, they are. And, uh, that's one thing that we also learned over a period of time is that their tactics really didn't change. The hardware may have changed and their munitions may have changed. They may have upgraded their radars. But one thing that is probably still not changed, and we see evidence, I think, of that in Ukraine as I'm watching these reports coming out now just through the press, that their tactics are still molded back in even pre-Cold War kind of psychology. Now, we had a bit of a problem with recording for this short section, so uh, the audio quality isn't as good as previously, but I think it's still worth listening to us, so just bear with us for this short section. Thank you. Now, in the notes you uh, sent me, you uh, had an interesting story about the cleaning staff at Strategic Air Command. (laughs) Yes, yes. I was working in the intel section of Strategic Air Command, SAC, during my last duty station in the U.S. Air Force. The custom in our section was that we worked 7 by 24 rotating shifts, and whoever had the Sunday afternoon shift was when the cleaning crew would come in, the civilian cleaning crew would come in and vacuum and dust and tidy up the uh, watch area. 
So during that time, we had to what we call sanitize the area. We had to cover up our, our screens whenever they were in the rooms. So they couldn't see the, the uh, display screens of the computers and hide all the classified information because, of course, these people were not cleared. And they came in with their dusting uh, rags and vacuums and started going throughout the watch center. Well, these people were supposed to be technically overseen, that is, monitored and supervised by at least one person that was on duty. This particular Sunday, though, uh, we had a TV in the area, and we were watching American football on the, on the television. And there was a particularly exciting game with a lot of playoff implications to it. So we were focused more on the TV set. And no one noticed that one of the cleaning crew had gotten into the next room, which was normal, and was cleaning in there in an unsupervised capacity. What happened to be that uh, the secure telephone rang in the other room. And the cleaning lady thought, well, this is a phone. I'll pick it up. So she picks up the phone and says, hello? And the voice in the end says, uh, hello? And uh, he says, who is this? She says, well, my name's Martha. Who is this? Well, my name is Brigadier General Annie. I, she says, uh, Oh, hi, Mr. Any. <laughs> and you can imagine how this is going. Yeah. Mr. Any says, what are you doing in my intel center? She says, well, I'm cleaning. Oh, you're cleaning. I see. She says, where are you? She says, he says, well, I happen to be up in an airplane at about 40,000 feet. Is there anyone else in the watch center? She says, oh, yeah, there are several officers and others that are out watching TV. He says, would you please put on the, the ranking person so I can speak to him? She says, I'll be happy to. So, of course, our duty officer, Major Burke, was aghast when the cleaning lady pops into our office while we're watching the telly. And says, uh, excuse me, I've got a Mr. Any on the phone that wants to speak to the ranking officer. His face turned completely white as a sheet. He bolted out of his seat and ran into the other office. We couldn't hear what was going on, but just based on the mannerisms and the nonverbal posture of Major Burke, uh, you could tell he was getting quite a tongue lashing. So he came back in and Obviously, from there on out, we had to make sure we kept a eagle eye on any and all of the cleaning personnel from there on out when they came in to clean the office. Because General Emmy happened to be up in the looking glass airborne SAC headquarters plane as the duty officer that day, and General Emmy ran a tight ship, so... This was something that we were the laughing stock of the, of the whole unit for weeks after this. Yeah, I can imagine you uh, got a number of calls later asking to speak to Martha. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
In fact, we wondered if she was just a plant, possibly, that had been uh, put in there. How did uh, Burke fare in his future career? Oh, uh, he made it to light colonel uh, eventually. Uh, this wasn't too much of a stain on his on his careers, apparently, because he did get promoted during the time I was there. Let's just say he was on the bubble after that. Yeah, yeah. Were you also tracking Soviet activity in the, in the Pacific? Yes, this happened during my time at SAC headquarters as well. Uh, we had to do the morning brief for General Enney, who later got his second star, became Major General Enney. And he would come in at 5.30 every morning for the morning brief. So we would rush around and get all the intel together for the briefing. And it was a worldwide briefing because, of course, Strategic Air Command had a worldwide posture for the nuclear deterrent for the U.S. forces. So every morning at 5.30, we would rush around and get all the intel reports from everywhere. And it would be a combined type thing. We would have SIGINT reports. We would have reports from CIA, DIA, other sources, sometimes British intelligence, and brief the general on what's going on. At this particular morning, uh, we had a recon flight of Tu-95 Bear bombers, naval configuration, that flew out from the Vladivostok area and were flying out towards our carrier group out in the Pacific that was on exercise. Now, in the SAC Intel headquarters, we had old-style world maps with plexiglass. And what we would do is use pinstriping tape and we would use different colors or thicknesses of the tape to plot the positions of either satellite tracks or, in this case, reconnaissance flights occurring in various parts of the world. Well, at the end of the flights, we would put little notations and a double hash marks showing that the flight ended at a particular area. And then we would use a box cutter knife to cut the tape there and have a nice clean display for the general to look at. We were such a rush that morning. I don't know who it was. It wasn't me, but one of our people forgot to cut the tape and left it hanging. So you see this flight leaving flight of a stock area headed out over the Pacific towards the carrier group. And then as a big coil of pinstriping tape just hanging there on the map. And it was left there as the big, as the briefing began. So our duty officer is briefing the general on everything that's going on. And they had to do this with no notes, by the way. General Annie was a stickler for you want to memorize everything and give it to me like an extemporaneous speech. So he's going along and he's describing this particular flight. And then the general just happens to notice as he's talking about the recce flight out over the Pacific. He says, that TU-95 been out there a long time, looks like. Do you think he has enough fuel? And the colonel that was doing the brief was puzzled. He says, sir, I don't follow you. He says, well, 
according to your map, he looks like he's been out there circling for a long time. Is he being refueled? And the colonel turns and looks at the map, and sure enough, there's the pinstriping tape, and there's the coil hanging off. It looks like this TU-95 has been circling there for hours and hours and hours. So, of course, no one wanted to laugh, but it was a laughable moment again. And from their point on, of course, we always made sure that the tape was cut and everything was clean before the briefing started. So that was Major General Annie having a little fun at our expense once again. You've got Soviet leaders dropping like flies around about this point. Uh, were you picking up much intel on uh, the situation in the Soviet Union with that regard? It became a bit comical because SAC, of course, they're the primary nuclear deterrent for the U.S. armed forces. We're sitting 45 feet under the ground in these concrete offices. You could go downstairs and see the big map boards. And you can see where all the submarines are located around and what the readiness of the various ICBM sites are. So you're really living there. At, if your finger's on the trigger, this is the trigger. This is what's going to launch. SAC, of course, had a great interest in, well, who's running the Soviet Union? Is it Andropov? Is it who? And they thought NSA would make assessments of this. Well, NSA generally doesn't make those kind of assessments. CIA would, because that's what they're tasked with. So on numerous occasions, as the situation was getting muddier in the Soviet Union, we would get periodically asked by the duty officer at SAC in the Intel Center, well, who's going who's gonna to take over? We would reply back, we don't know. Well, call, call NSA and find out. Well, I got into an argument with one of the duty officers one evening. Didn't get heated, I didn't think. But I pushed back and said, Sir, NSA doesn't make those kinds of assessments. That would be more CIA, and we don't, I, I, I don't tree up to them. I don't care. I'm telling you, you I want to know what NSA thinks. So we'd get on the secure phone, call the duty officer at the National Secure Operations Center at Fort Meade and say, well, I've got the SAC colonel that's asking me who's going to succeed and drop off. And I'll get cursed at. <laughs> we don't do that kind of assessment. Why are you calling me about this? Well, I've got this colonel, sir. I don't care because I'm talking to a civilian, high-ranking civil servant, who's saying, I don't care if it's a general that's calling. We don't make those assessments, and you can tell him that. So hang up the phone, go back to the colonel. Sir, the duty officer at NSOC says, we don't know, and we don't track that. 
And this would go on and on and on because they didn't want to take no for an answer. They thought we had some sort of magic keys to the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were describing there the, um, the SAC command center. It, it gives me an image of like something out of Dr. Strange love. Is, is that not, uh, is that an exaggeration or is it, is it like a big screen with all the readiness there or so, something a bit like mission control? For an Apollo mission, it's a little. Well, it, it's kind of divided for one thing. In the in the main mission control area, it looks just like at NASA for a space launch. You've got these gigantic screens that uh, flat map of the world, and again, you would have depictions of where our subs were, where the Russian subs were, all plotted out on there. It was quite high tech for its time. Uh, I only went in there a few times because my duty station was in the actual briefing room area where we would have access with our computers to the incoming intel. And then we would prepare the briefs for the commander of the SAC intel group who happened to be a two-star general. So there we had flat maps with plexiglass that we would put up either with grease pencil or with pinstriping tape showing different collection flights going on or movements and whatever. And we would brief the briefing officer who would in turn then brief the two-star general and his staff every morning at 5.30 of what was going on and then help them field questions from that two-star. Apologies, here's another short section where the audio quality isn't what I would have liked. Thank you. Were you involved in any missile alerts or anything like that? Uh, sometimes we would be when the Soviets would be doing drills with their strategic rocket forces, SRF, uh, when they would be placed on alert, or when their airborne command posts would be practicing going through nuclear drills, of course, as they escalate, we escalate. So many a times when these situations would occur or when we would see movements or get intel reports of movements of the strategic rocket forces deploying from one area to another, this would be of high interest to SAC, very much so. And as well as any of the uh, senior officers of the general staff. So you mean any movements of the, the general staff of the Soviet army? That's correct. Did the Soviets warn you of any missile tests or anything like that, just to keep the temperature down? Uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, they were, there was very little indication that I ever got personally, and, and I think this mirrored a lot of the experience of the people that I worked with, is that the Soviets would be very surreptitious about what they did. And if they did any sort of back-channel type of warning, it was certainly not apparent to us. We just assumed that they were our adversaries and that they would give no notice of an attack. You can imagine, you know, the climate as it was in the Cold War, that both sides were on a level of heightened vigilance against each other. So there was a lot of suspicion and a lot of, figuratively, 
fingers of the, on the trigger. Which was one of the reasons why you had that looking glass system where you always had an airborne command post just in case there was a surprise strike. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. Um, so y- you end your um, posting to uh, Strategic Air Command in, in Nebraska in, in 83. What was next for you? Uh, from there, I left the Air Force. That was my final Air Force posting after eight years in. At that point, I was wanting to make a decision. I'd completed my university degree in my own time. Therefore, I was eligible to go into officer training school, and I applied twice but didn't get selected either time. At the same time, I put feelers back to NSA, to the people that I had been working with over the years there, saying that, well, if I don't get selected for officer candidate school, could you use me there? Well, I had a pretty good reputation already built up with the folks at NSA, so they said, yeah, we'll take you in a New York minute, as we say. And they did. For those of us that may not know what the NSA is, what, what, is, what, it, what does the NSA do? Well, it's a national security agency. It's roughly the equivalent of your GCHQ, Government Communications Headquarters. It's headquartered at Fort Meade, Maryland, which is about halfway between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland, on the Army post there. NSA is tasked with the gathering mostly of mostly military-type intelligence uh, worldwide. It is primarily tasked with the electronic collection of information by means of various things like satellites, ground stations, and that sort of thing. Uh, The U.S. armed services components that are dealing with intel collection operationally report into NSA. So, for instance, when I was in the American Air Force, I was with the U.S. Air Force Security Service. Uh, our equivalent with the Navy was the Navy Support Group and then the Army Intel Corps. Uh, all these reported operationally in NSA. Operationally, NSA would task us with collection against certain targets, command centers, Uh, networks, that sort of thing, to glean information on various sites. For instance, when I was at Chicksands, we had weather reports for certain airfields that were such high importance that hourly we had to send in weather reports that we intercepted and forward those up to NSA, which would then also be disseminated out to Strategic Air Command, Strike Command at High Wycombe, Supreme Allied Command, Europe, and Brussels, and others, giving indications that these are some of the top targets, and this is what their weather reports are doing right now. Then others of lesser importance would be on a three-hour or six-hour basis. So all that was controlled by NSA, even though we wore the uniform of our particular branch of the service. So you, with the Air Force, you're part of the web, but the NSA is the spider in the middle. Would that be a decent analogy? Yeah, that's pretty nefarious sounding, but yes. <laughs> How did your role work at the NSA? 
we didn't have the intel coming in. We had to search for it. And how we searched for it was through the internet. But it wasn't called the internet then. It was called DARPAnet. It's the precursor of the internet. And we had a terminal that we could get onto. And we could contact CIA, DIA, NSA, GCHQ. And we would have access to certain reporting that was going on. We could submit a query or we could get information that would be released through that. That was our magic terminal. And little did you know what that was going to morph into. Had no idea that I'd be balancing my checkbook and ordering things for Amazon on top of (laughs) using some (laughs) sort of device like that. In fact, I was the administrator for our account at uh, CSG SAC. So I controlled everybody's access and also was responsible for making sure that the, uh, that our terminal was online all the time, which would be comical because every morning at two in the morning, our crypto cards were supposed to be changed out so that we could sync up with the host server back at Langley at CIA. And sometimes the comm center person would forget to change out the crypto card. So we would have nothing but gibberish all over the screen when we tried to pull up things. So we had to go to the comm center and knock on the door. Uh, Have you changed the crypto cards yet? Oh, okay. And then they would change the crypto card and suddenly the screen would change from gibberish to actual text and reports coming in. I I love the, the stories of sort of bureaucratic incompetence in those sort of situations I always find amusing. Perhaps less so if it was, uh, you know, something really serious. I, I tell people when they ask about my background, and they say, what did you do in the service? What do you do with NSA? And I said, I was in the ultimate of oxymorons, military intelligence. And if you've been in intel, you'll know what I mean, if you're familiar with it. I haven't, but I've heard a, a, lot, of, a lot of stories that, that echo your experiences. Apologies. Here's another short section where the audio quality isn't what I would have liked. Thank you. Um, I mean, we we talk a lot about the, you know, you looking at the Soviets. Were were you also keeping an eye on the Chinese to see what they were up to? During my time at NSA, I happened to be working the Chinese desk. And one of the things that was noticeable was that the air defense tracking for the Chinese seemed to have suddenly become much more sophisticated in tracking our SR-71 reconnaissance flights over the East China Sea. Normally, these flights would take off out of Kadena Air Base in Okinawa and then take up a position, roughly what we call a racetrack formation or a large figure eight out over the ocean, uh, not actually flying over the mainland, but they would take a track up in a figure eight and the Chinese air defense radars had a terrible time trying to keep track of the SR-71 because of course it's flying at Mach 3 or higher and their radars could not keep up so they were always a minute, two minutes behind in reporting through their ground stations up to their air defense sector headquarters. 
Well, one day, suddenly, it seemed like they were not only able to track, but very highly accurately track the SR-71 within just a few seconds, which amazed everyone. Could it be that they had suddenly put in place a new sophisticated high-tech radar and we had no inkling of this? So this carried on for several days and they were just spot on tracking the SR-71 with precision that they had never seen before. So, instead of issuing a report about new, possibly new sophisticated radar for the Chinese, one of the analysts said, well, hang on a minute. Let's try something. He had a hunch. So, normally the track would start at a particular point, the SR-71 in its track, would track sort of northeasterly, then turn to the northwest, then around the top of the figure eight, and go anti-clockwise, and then down the figure eight, and go clockwise, and then back in a particular motion, one way. So he said, let's try something. So what they did is they changed the route of the SR-71 to start at, at a different point and go in a completely different direction in the figure eight. Well, as he started on his route, the Chinese figured out, yeah, he's there. So they started sending air defense tracking. And lo and behold, they started tracking him in his old path. And he's actually our radars and our indicators showed that he was actually going southbound when the Chinese were tracking him northbound. And this continued on for several minutes. They're plotting away and putting this is position completely outside of where it's supposed to be. And then suddenly the operator of the radar realized, oops, scrap, delete all that tracking. And suddenly they're rushing around trying to track him southbound. So what we thought to be a indicator that the Chinese had upgraded their radar simply meant that they had fallen into the pattern and been able to predict what we were doing with the SR-71, so they were cheating a bit and their air defense tracking and just being lazy. And this is the way it was proven out. So a bit humorous, just showing that that uh, in the area of intel, it's always measures and countermeasures. You're always trying to figure out the other guy. And sometimes when you think that you have something that's very significant, it turns out the other fellows just changed up things a bit just to keep you honest. So you did, those flight, they didn't sort of try and randomize them anyway. They, they were quite predictable in terms of oh, yes. how they were going to fly them. Right. It becomes so predictable. The Chinese simply just knew what time you'd be on station ran a couple of radar sweeps to notice that he was there, and then just started filling in the blanks based on habit, not actual tracking. At our expense, once again. Can't read it. So in you're at uh, Fort Meade for about a year, and then you're back in the delightful 
British countryside, but a different location. Yes. Well, when I went to NSA, of course, I didn't have the blue uniform of the U.S. Air Force on anymore. I was civilian, full-time, civil servant, and went to Fort Meade and thought I would be there for some years. After about eight weeks on board, my boss came to me at my desk and said, we need help at GCHQ. And you're the person that would be best uh, suited to help out with that. I said, well, that's great. I I could do with a temporary duty. You, You want me to go over for a week, a couple of weeks? I'll even go for a month. And he just laughed. He says, no, we're talking about three years, four years. Well, at the time, I just moved into my apartment, my wife and I, my young son. We still had cardboard boxes that we hadn't unpacked. And I said, well, can I think about it? And he says, yeah, but we need a decision pretty quickly because this is an urgent need for you. So I went home and I remember my wife saying, "Uh, we just got here. So I accepted. What were you there? Were you a liaison between the the NSA and the the British there or, or what was your role? Yeah, we worked side by side with British civil servants as well as uh, U.S. military that had been assigned there, primarily U.S. Navy, a couple of Air Force, also Royal Navy, and RAF personnel were assigned there. Of course, all the service people were in civilian clothes. There were no uniforms. And I was attached there kind of as a joint operation to assist uh, with the intel collection and analysis. Except this time we were gathering it from more than one site. Uh, When I was at Chick Sands, we did what Chick Sands was tasked with. When I was at GCHQ, we got the intel feeds from Chick Sands, but we also got them from RAF Digby, from uh, Edsel in Scotland for the U.S. Navy site there. San Vito, Italy, U.S. Air Force collection site, plus Berlin and others. So it gave even a wider range. It was almost like being at SAC headquarters, but at least we could do an intelligence analysis as well. That was what we were tasked with. So I had a British boss and a U.S. boss. How was that? Well, it got to be interesting at times. Most everyone got along very well. Everyone played nice in the sandbox. But there were times where sometimes, uh, for instance, there there were times when our British boss would say, well, I know that you, you, you work for NSA, but you're operationally under our control, so we're going to go this direction with this particular project or analysis. And so we would advise our compatriots back across the pond. Hey, I know I work for you, but I'm operationally under this person. And he and his great white chief have decided we're going this way with this, just advising you. So it didn't happen very often. NSA and GCHQ are very much in sync. At least they were when I was there. And I, have no indication that that would have changed over the years. 
I realise you can't speak about specifics, but would an example with your British boss in in the scenario that you you just described, where he or she believes that there's a path worth following that's more in the British national interest rather than the overall interest? Well, certainly when it came to things like the Falklands, mm-hmm. that would be a prime example. At the outset of the Falkland conflict, there was a lot of wondering on the British side, since America had not declared for either side, who are you going to back? We were allies with the Argentinians, but we were also allies with the British. And at the time, there had been no public announcement or indication of Either side asked for our help. What are we going to do? So we were told in no uncertain terms that if America throws in with the Argentinians, you need not come to work. You will not be allowed in the office. You might not even be, you might be declared persona non grata and frog marched to Gatwick to get on a flight back to America. Luckily, that never happened. But such was the, the state of things at the time that, uh, you know, we're kind of hanging in the balance. That was a, an interesting um, divergence during that period, because I think there was a belief that the Soviets were giving the Argentinians satellite information. Yeah, I don't know that we ever got any corroboration of that. I know that the Argentinians did ask for American help. And I think there was a time, I don't think it lasted long, but we kept them at arm's length. And finally, the decision was made. No, we, you instigated this. We have a lot longer and closer relationship with the British. That's who we're backing. This is the last section of the uh, ropey audio, but well worth a listen. Were you around when the Chernobyl reactor exploded in 1986? Yes, I happened to be working the morning of. Yes. Wow. Uh, can you uh, tell me uh, what you were seeing? Yes, we had noticed some things very peculiar very early on coming out of what we call the Carpathian Military District. We were monitoring weather broadcasts in the area, and normally the station out of Lviv sends upper air reports every six hours, and their standard WMO type of upper air reports going up to certain altitudes. These are taken by weather balloons. They're nothing top secret or or uh, classified about them. Uh, it's just these stations would all around the world send upper air reports as part of the WMO gathering and sharing of information. On the military broadcast, however, they also included these and tried to encrypt the station number, which was their clever way of trying to maintain some sort of level of secrecy. But we were tasked to capture these reports and report them up to to GCHQ and NSA and other users, because obviously it would give us an indication of what would be going on in that area should something were to uh, go into some sort of a conflict or even just an exercise. However, the morning of Chernobyl incident, 
what we noticed is that the station in Lviv began broadcasting up rare reports in a very strange format that we'd never seen before. For one, they started sending these off hours as opposed to the regularly scheduled times. Normally, they would send them on every six-hour kinds of schedules, but what they were doing were sending them hourly, which was highly unusual. Second, that the format of the upper-air reports were much longer than what we had normally seen. That is, there was more data. I had no indication of how to break these out. My job as an analyst was merely to work out who the stations were and then report the information up. However, my counterpart over at GCHQ was highly interested in these and started working on them because he was a Met officer. And what he came back with during the course of the morning, we discovered that the upper air reports not only were more frequent, but they were going at much higher altitudes than ever previously reported out of Lviv. They were going up quite high, sometimes as high as 80,000 feet, which is unheard of. And the fact that they were broadcasting these hourly combined into something that was very significant. Now, at the time, we had no other indication in our particular area of expertise that there was anything amiss there. So we just reported it as an anomaly. It wasn't until later as more news reports, open source news reports were reporting that there had been the reactor breach. So we had one of the very first indications. We just didn't know what to make of it at the time. And these reports continued hourly and then fell back to a three-hourly basis for the next week. So, again, this is uh, one of the things that we had talked about as far as indications and warning, when when the chat that you're listening in on suddenly makes a change in his procedure and starts sending something that he doesn't normally send, that's something that is supposed to attract our attention, and then we report it up the stream at the chain of command. Well, you didn't know it was radiation or there was a breach of the the reactor at that point you just noticed there was a change in the behavior of yes a sudden yeah sudden and very noticeable change so while you're at gchq i mean this is the point at which the soviet power and the communist governments in eastern europe start to show signs of weakness because uh you know just going back to solidarity i think in 83 uh martial law is ended in poland mm-hmm. and yaroszewski realizes that he's got to allow solidarity to exist to just be able to run run the country so there is a slow path there to um democracy what what are you are you seeing in Poland and in the other Warsaw Pact countries at that time? Do you have any indication that the whole house of cards is going to come down? I would love to say yes. I was a brilliant analyst and I saw it happening, but I would be lying like a dog. As we say, I, I was flummoxed 
by the by the time my time with NSA and GCHQ ended in 1988, I would have not bet the farm that this would have ever happened. Uh, if anything, it seemed like we were just going to continue to be in a very highly adversarial and very taut relationship with the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact for years to come. No indications that this was going to crack, that there was any rumblings or anything that we saw. And of course, remember, uh, we're looking primarily at the military side of things. I was not involved with a lot of analysis in terms of what was happening within the civil structures of these countries at all. So I, I would really need to qualify my answer by saying that. There may have been, but I just wasn't privy to that kind of information. Well, you weren't around in 89, so you can be excused, Tim, for uh, not foreseeing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember seeing what was happening, and I thought, I, I never thought I would live to see this day. Really. Yeah. Uh, I had indications that it could have possibly happened because, again, as I said earlier in our in our uh, interview, that there were indications that the the big bad Soviets were not only human, but they were very flawed in terms of their their structures, in terms of their thinking, in terms of their doctrine. It was always, to me, it wouldn't take much, like a house of cards, for the Soviet military to one day someone get the idea that this is not to be. Is there anything else you you want to add or any sort of anecdotes that we've missed out? You must have some choice stories knocking around there. Going back to my time at NSA, I was not there very long, only not even a year on site at Fort Meade. But going back to the bureaucracy of things, which was, to me, always comical. After about six days on site at NSA, I had my own desk. I had a regular phone and a secure phone on my desk. I was working my tasks and getting used to being civilian. My secure phone rings. I pick it up. Uh, this is Tim Weekly. And this is Human Resources. Uh, you failed to show up for your language proficiency test this morning. I go, language proficiency test? I had no idea I was supposed to be. Oh, yes, you were supposed to be here at 8 o'clock for your language proficiency test. And this could affect your employment with the agency. You know, this is a very serious thing. So I'm, I'm getting worried. Like, well, no one told me. I got no indication. I, can we reschedule? Yes, we can reschedule you. Can you come in tomorrow morning at 8.30? This is urgent. We need to take care of this during your first week with the agency. Yes, yes, I'll be there at 8.30. I'll be there with bells on, as they say. Then I thought, ma'am, which language do you, or am I supposed to have proficiency in? She says, Vietnamese. I said, Vietnamese? She says, yes, Vietnamese. My response to her is, lady, I know three terms in Vietnamese, Hanoi, 
Ho Chi Minh and Saigon. That's it. If you're expecting me to be a Vietnamese linguist, we're in deep trouble. And so she says, oh, well, I need to get with my boss on this. And I said, so do I. So I go walking back to my boss and tell him the story. He breaks out into laughter. Oh, I know what happened. We wanted you so bad. We didn't have an open billet for you as an analyst. So we put you in as a linguist. I didn't know they were going to put you in as a Vietnamese linguist. It was a temporary thing until we could transfer you into the right billet. And I said, well, thanks a lot. I mean, I'm, I told him what I told them, and he just laughed. Brilliant. He says, we'll get it straightened out. Don't worry. Brilliant. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos, and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.